Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Nina Kim. Coming up on Forum, we look at how the U.S. Senate became so polarized and the role of the filibuster in creating legislative gridlock. Today, senators can delay or block a bill just by signaling their intent to filibuster. And with 60 votes required to override it, Democrats say their narrow Senate majority won't ensure that President Biden's agenda will be enacted. In his new book, Kill Switch, Adam Gentleson looks at how the filibuster became a powerful tool for minority rule, as well as its racist roots. He joins us after this news. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're joined this hour by Adam Gentleson, author of Kill Switch, The Rise of the Modern Senate and the Crippling of American Democracy. Gentleson worked as Deputy Chief of Staff for Senator Harry Reid when Reid was the Democratic leader in the Senate. Adam Gentleson, welcome to Forum. Thank you. It's great to be here. So Kill Switch is about the role of the Senate filibuster and how it became a powerful way to uphold minority rule. To help us understand the impact of the filibuster right now, I actually want to talk to you about the $1.9 trillion COVID relief bill that Democrats plan to bring to a vote in the coming days. Um, first, can you remind us what's basically in the bill so far? I, I know it it's changing in real time, but um, but also about the intraparty compromises it took to get to this point. Because you were an aide to Harry Reid, and I'm curious, is this legislation a success in that regard? Well, uh, what's what's in the bill is a comprehensive package of uh, relief, uh, economic relief, and measures to speed uh, the rate of getting the supply of vaccines out to the public. So, assistance to states and localities to help uh, distribute the vaccines, um, and then, you know, as I mentioned, direct economic relief to Americans, such as uh, direct payment checks that were a big topic of conversation last fall and into the Georgia Senate runoffs, um, as well as continuing the program of increasing the amount of weekly benefits that Americans who have unemployment insurance are going to get. So uh, with this package added on to what was passed last December, uh, you're getting to about $3 trillion in total economic relief, which is about what a lot of mainstream, credible, middle-of-the-road economists said was necessary last fall. So uh, you can sort of see this as the follow-on to what we passed, uh, what Congress passed in December. Um, and together, it's it's a pretty uh, comprehensive response to the to the problem. Um, and 
I, I think it's a success on the policy. Um, as far as the politics go, what's really interesting about this package is that it appears to be poised to pass with uh, exclusively Democratic votes. That's mm -hmm. how it passed the House of Representatives. And it looks like that's probably how it's going to pass the Senate. Uh, contrast that to December, where the bill that was passed, passed with a broad bipartisan supermajority, um, lots of Republicans and Democrats joining together uh, in both houses to pass it. And I think what you see there is a reflection of the, the shift in power. And uh, this is something I write a lot about in the book, which is there are strong structural forces at work that pull uh, the parties away from cooperation with the side that's in power. So when Trump was still in power, Republicans were much more happy to come along and cooperate. Um, and then a lot of the same programs are being proposed, including the unemployment plus up and the direct checks under Biden, and Republicans don't want to cooperate. And you know you can you can argue why that's wrong, uh, ethically, morally, and all that stuff, which which I wouldn't necessarily disagree with. But you, it's also important to recognize the strong structural political incentives uh, that push them to obstruct, uh, which is which is a big reason uh, of what's wrong in the Senate today. It, it just makes more sense for the party that's out of power to obstruct, to advance their political fortunes. And that's that's a big problem uh, uh, creating gridlock in America today. Mm, which is also a big reason that this bill, notably, is presented as part of the budget and reconciliation process. That's right. That means it only needs a simple majority to pass. That's right. So this is a fast track procedure. Um, we call it reconciliation. Um, that was invented in the 1970s, uh, designed to be used specifically for budget-related items. Um, the 70s was when Congress decided to start passing a budget uh, because the size of the federal government was was growing, and it was sort of a, a move to take back control from the executive branch and assert Congress's role in the budgetary planning process. Mm. Um, and then there was a follow-on law in the 80s called the Bird Rule that that sort of narrowed the restrictions on what was allowed to use this fast track procedure. The reason is that, you know, as a fast track, it lets anything that goes down this path go around the filibuster. And so it only anything that is used through the reconciliation track only needs to get a simple majority vote. There's no opportunity to filibuster this bill or force it to clear the supermajority of 60 votes that items must face if they face a filibuster, as most other items do in today's Senate. Um, but yes, the use of that procedure for this bill was an acknowledgement that they may not get Republican votes, or at least not enough to get to 60. Uh, and that they sort of, you know, anticipated needing to pass this with, with only Democratic votes on a simple majority basis. But it raises some interesting questions about maybe other legislation should be allowed to pass this way, since it does seem to be successful for delivering this much needed aid. Yes, maybe allowed to pass this way or uh support for trying to get rid of the filibuster altogether. I mean, you tweeted about the bill yesterday and you tweeted, quote, this is exhibit A for why we should eliminate the filibuster instead <laughs> of spending a year chasing GOP votes, not getting them, but whittling down the policy anyway and making the bill worse. Democrats are passing a strong, hugely popular bill while McConnell is on the sidelines. You go on to say, Adam Gentleson, <laughs> now picture this dynamic on every other issue. That's what a Senate without the filibuster will be like. So clearly, I mean, you feel like this, this tool, the filibuster tool, is something that should be eliminated. So make your case. And if you'd like, by, by way of introduction, um, you can also talk about its origins as well, but but curious why you feel so strongly. 
at this point. Sure. So, you know, a lot of what the book is about is is the origins of the filibuster, which I think, you know, is is the single thing that a lot of people associate with the Senate. They think of, you know, Ms. Jimmy Smith and Mr. St- uh, sorry, Jimmy Stewart and Mr. Smith <laughs> goes to Washington, right. uh, the Frank Capra movie, you know, standing on the floor, giving this long winded speech. Um, it's something that's identified with the Senate. But the thing about the filibuster is that it wasn't actually supposed to be part of the Senate. Not only was it not intended to be there, it wasn't there. And the framers argued that nothing like it should exist um, because they were very cognizant of the dangers of obstruction. Um, when they wrote the Constitution, they had just had previous firsthand experience with the Articles of Confederation, where there was a supermajority requirement for Congress to pass most major pieces of legislation. And this was a disaster and it caused frequent gridlock. So they were being very careful not to repeat this mistake. And so they were very clear in the Federalist Papers and their correspondence and the notes from the Constitutional Convention uh, that they wanted every decision point inside of our government to be majority rule, Mm -hmm. including in the Senate. Um, the filibuster was started to come into existence in the 19th century, uh, primarily as a tool to protect the slave power, uh, because they represented a, a minority and they could see that, you know, if the majority was able to have its way, uh, it was going to move towards abolition of slavery. Um, so that's when the talking filibuster, the Jimmy Stewart style filibuster was invented as a tool to delay bills for as long as you could speak. In the 20th century, it started to acquire this ability that we see today, of the ability to impose a supermajority threshold, by which I mean a higher than a majority requirement for things to pass. Um, I think it's important for your listeners to know that for most of the Senate's existence, for about 200 years, almost everything that came before the Senate passed or failed on the basis of whether it could secure a majority of votes in the Senate. Only civil rights through the Jim Crow era ever faced a systematic requirement of clearing a supermajority threshold in this early application of the filibuster. Hmm. Um, so everything that we passed that built post-war America, the New Deal, the interstate highway system, all of these things that, that built our economy and made it strong, passed or failed on the basis of whether they could secure a majority. None of these things faced filibusters. What we've done now is we've started to apply the supermajority threshold to every piece of legislation. Uh, and there's, you know, it took civil rights of virtually a hundred years to pass from the end of Reconstruction to 1974, or 1964, excuse me, um, because it had to clear a supermajority threshold. The reason we're seeing so much gridlock in Washington now is we're applying the supermajority threshold that was the reason civil rights took so long to pass to every other issue. So that's why you see issues like climate change, um, uh, efforts to fight income inequality, and many other issues that have broad public support, uh, but but are not passing because they have to clear a supermajority threshold, which is a nearly impossible requirement in our polarized political environment. What you're saying is that people were ready to pass something akin to civil rights legislation much, much earlier than it actually happened. Correct. And the the evidence behind this statement is pretty overwhelming. Um, Civil rights bills, and by which I mean anti-lynching bills, uh, anti-poll tax bills, and bills to fight workplace discrimination, started passing the House of Representatives as early as the 1890s by huge majorities. They arrived in the Senate where they appeared to have majority support, and in some cases clearly demonstrated that they had majority support, and they had presidents of both parties ready and willing to sign them. What stopped them over this 87-year period from the end of Reconstruction, 1877 to 1964, was the Senate filibuster. If it wasn't for the filibuster, they almost certainly would have passed. And the other point that's important to note, you know, we have this idea that, that America wasn't ready for civil rights, perhaps, but but 
the public was ready. Uh, Gallup started polling issues of civil rights as early as the 1930s. In 1937, the first time they polled public support for federal anti-lynching laws, they found 72% of the public supporting these laws, including a majority in the South. Uh, the first time they pulled anti-poll tax laws in the 1940s, they found upwards of 60% support. So America was ready. Congress had strong majorities to pass these bills. Every other issue only needed majorities to pass. Uh, the application of the filibuster and this new supermajority threshold is the single reason that these civil rights bills did not pass for nearly 100 years. But ultimately, one did pass. So how do you explain that and the role of the filibuster now to continue with obstruction? Yeah, well, I mean, to, to that, I, I would say that, you know, it probably would have been better and saved a lot of human suffering um, if it hadn't taken 87 years uh, for that <laughs> bill to pass. There was actually even an episode in 1957 when Eisenhower was president, um, where he came out very strongly with the civil rights bill. Uh, that was very similar to the one that eventually passed in 1964. Um, Richard Nixon, before he became Mr. White Backlash, was actually the Republican Party's point man on civil rights. Eisenhower was endorsed by the NAACP in 1956. He won 40% of the black vote. Republicans were making a strong play to be the party of civil rights. So as late as 1957, they were ready to pass a strong civil rights bill, and it it was blocked by the filibuster. It eventually passed in gutted form, um, but it was such a shell that that uh, it didn't really do anything. It was acceptable even to the segregationist senators of the South. So I would say that, you know, that delay caused count, countless amounts of or you know, incalculable human suffering. Um, nice. And it would have been better if it passed earlier. But and then today, I would say you see you see the same thing on issues like climate change, where we do not lack uh, pragmatic solutions that have broad bipartisan support out in the public and probably could pass with simple majorities. We're not lacking for solutions to many of these issues. Uh, what we have is a system that has been forged by obstructionists to make it nearly impossible to pass things even when they have pragmatic solutions supported by broad bipartisan majorities of the American people. We're talking with Adam Gentleson about the filibuster and its racist roots. He's author of Kill Switch, The Rise of the Modern Senate and the Crippling of American Democracy. What questions or comments do you have about how the filibuster is used in the Senate today or historically? Do you think we should eliminate it? Do you have broader questions about how the Senate is structured and how it deliberates? Give us a call, 866-733-6786. Email us, forum at kqed.org, or get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. More after the break. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking with Adam Gentleson, author of Kill Switch, The Rise of the Modern Senate and the Crippling of American Democracy. He's also the executive director of the Battleborn Collective, a progressive political strategy group, and the former deputy chief of staff for Senator Harry Reid. And if you'd like to join the conversation or ask Adam Gentleson your questions about the filibuster or share your opinion, you can do so at 866-733-6786. Again, that number, 866-733-6786. 
1-800-273-8486. You can also get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum or email us at forum at kqed.org. Richard asks, if the filibuster had not been in place during the Trump administration, would Obamacare have been repealed? Uh, can you talk to Richard about what happened with Obamacare? Yeah, so I can confidently say no to that question because the way that Republicans tried to repeal it um, proved this to be the case. They they tried to repeal uh, Obamacare through the use of reconciliation, which yes. is the process we were talking about before where you only need a simple majority. So the filibuster didn't actually play any kind of major role in the ability to stop Republicans from repealing Obamacare. Um, Republicans only needed a majority to repeal it, and they failed to get that majority. The famous episode where John McCain walked onto the floor, turned his thumb down, um, and voted against it uh, yep. was was what caused McConnell to fail to get a majority. And I think this is an instructive point. It's very hard uh, to get a majority to pass things in American politics. These were the checks and balances that the framers put in place, and they thought this was sufficient. Um, and even without the filibuster, America's system of government still has more checks and balances than any other modern democracy. Um, so I think that, and, and the other point is that progressive reforms historically have been very hard to undo once they're in place. Um, reforms like Obamacare that give people a stronger social safety net and the expansion of rights that we've seen through progressive progress for the last 200 years. Historically, once these things are in place, they're extremely hard to undo. Obamacare was politically unpopular until Republicans tried to repeal it, and then people realized they loved it, and it became politically devastating to Republicans to try to repeal it. So, you know, there's an understandable fear that if we got rid of the filibuster, Republicans would come in and undo everything Democrats do, and there'd certainly be some give and take. But I think the idea that there would be, you know, uh, widespread repeal of everything Democrats pass is belied by the fact that it it has never really happened that way. It also never happened in America when the Senate was a majority rule body for most of its existence. It doesn't happen in other countries that have majority rule legislatures. And I think the experience of Obamacare demonstrates that there's an enormous political cost to trying this, uh, and it didn't work out for Republicans when they when they tried to do it there. Well, let me go to caller Margie in Pinole. Hi, Margie. Hi. Um, yeah, I, I guess that maybe the speaker just kind of answered the question, but I'm just wondering if there are ever any instances where filibustering benefits the Democratic side. Um, you know, it seems like it's almost a perspective sort of thing, you know, what, what party you tend to affiliate yourself with. Um, so I'm just wondering if there are any instances where filibustering actually benefits Democrats. Mm, Margie, thanks. Adam Gentleson. To be honest, there, there really just aren't that many, um, that it, especially since the parties have been sorted. It was a little, it's a little harder to, to answer that question in the earlier eras where um, the parties were very mixed ideologically. Um, for instance, a filibuster stopped a bill to end busing in 1972, um, but it was a Democratic bill to end busing. And of course, this was when Democrats still had many segregationist senators mm -hmm. in their party. Um, but in more recent years, where you have sort of a cleaner picture, where all conservatives have been sorted into the Republican Party and all liberals have been sorted into the Democratic Party, you can find a few instances where the filibuster helped Democrats. Um, but by and large, it has overwhelmingly benefited Republicans. And that's it's not a coincidence. It has to do with the structural differences between the parties. Um, Republicans are the party of conservatives. Conservatives are the force in our politics who want to stand athwart history yelling stop in William F. Buckley's famous phrase. They want to preserve the status quo. They want to stop big change from passing. Um, and 
Democrats are the party of progress. They want to pass big things. And um, the main way you make big progressive change in America is by passing legislation. Other tools like executive orders um, and things like that just simply don't have anywhere close to the same impact as passing legislation. So the filibuster is a tool that makes it easier to stop legislation. And as such, it dramatically benefits in a structural way the party that seeks to preserve the status quo much more than it helps the party that seeks to change the status quo. Obviously, there are things Republicans do want to pass. Um, it's not a perfect analogy. It's not a perfect uh, uh, model. But if you're looking at it from a structural perspective and you sort of want to say, who would this change benefit more? There's simply no question that it would benefit the side that wants to make big change and big progress through big legislation more than it would benefit the side that wants to stop things. What Margie uh, might also be touching on, though, is an argument that I frequently hear for keeping the filibuster, or at least the filibuster in some form, and it's the argument that sort of be careful what you wish for because it will come back to bite you. Uh, for example, Democrats will need the filibuster when they're back in the minority. That's right. And I think one, one thing that's important to think of here is, you know, first of all, there's the Obamacare example we talked about before, where, you know, it. Republicans got their tax cuts through reconciliation. They got their judges, um, and there just wasn't a lot else they wanted to to pass, um, and they were unable to pass Obamacare. But the other thing I would say is that, you know, it's it's probably not a great idea to put a lot of faith in the idea that Mitch McConnell and Republicans will preserve this tool and allow Democrats to use it once they're back in power. Um, Do you, you think know, he'll McConnell, eliminate it as soon as he's back in power? I, I do, if and I think back in power. Yeah, that's right. I think I think that as soon as Republicans take back power, if they take back power, um, the first time that there's something they want to pass that can get 50 votes but can't get 60 votes, and Democrats filibuster it, um, McConnell will will get rid of the filibuster, just like he rammed through Amy Coney Barrett, you know, right before an election after blocking Merrick Garland because it was too close to an election in his telling. Um, you know, one thing to note is while he resisted calls to get rid of the filibuster under Trump. Um, the filibuster was useful to McConnell because it provided him a shield to not pass a lot of the crazy stuff that Trump wanted him to pass. Hmm. But if McConnell comes back to power and he's with a president with whom his goals are actually aligned on policy, which I think is you know, more likely, um, he's going to get rid of the filibuster as soon as he wants to. So I think you know, sacrificing major progressive goals that we can pass now on the hopes that this tool will still be available to us and Republicans will allow us to use it um, is probably a miscalculation because they'll just get rid of it when when it serves their interests. Before I take the next call, I want to ask you, and I, and I also do want to underline your earlier point that you're saying a majority is already a pretty high bar. Uh, <laughs> you don't need this sort of 60 vote threshold. You also say in your book that you believe making things easier to pass promotes bipartisan bipartisanship. Can you explain that? Yes. So so this is the experience of the previous 200 years when the Senate didn't have to clear supermajority thresholds for most legislation. Um, the way you would see bipartisanship develop is, you know, the gears of legislation are turning. People are actually legislating. Things are actually getting done. Um, this pro this promotes fertile ground for cooperation. Um, what you've done with the filibuster and the rise of the supermajority threshold is you've given everybody uh, another option, which is to manufacture gridlock to make the party in power look bad. And that has been shown to be an irresistible temptation for the minority. Um, when their choices are limited to either working with the majority and getting something done or just sitting on the sidelines, they're more likely to work with the 
majority and get something done. If they have the third option of saying, well, I can just stop the majority from doing anything, make them look bad and win the next election, they're often going to choose that option. Um, but you know, things like Medicare, you, you look back through history, and what, what often happened was these issues would be fought tooth and nail until the side that uh, was advocating for them demonstrated that they had a majority in support of their proposal. And then after they cleared that majority threshold, a bunch more people would jump on board and they would pass with a strong bipartisan vote. So there's a memo from LBJ's top legislative aide, uh, Mike Manitos, to LBJ saying that Manitos was confident Medicare would pass because he had counted 55 votes in support of it. So clearly they thought all they needed to pass it was a majority. Once it was clear Medicare was going to pass, they ran up the score. A bunch of other people jumped on board and it passed with 70 votes. Um, you saw something similar with the vote to call witnesses in the Trump trial um, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, this was a majority threshold vote and five Republicans crossed over and voted with Democrats with, for it. So it was a, you know, 55 senators and five Republicans. That's a strong bipartisan vote. If it had had to clear 60, it would have failed. Um, so even though it was bipartisan, it, it wouldn't have worked. So this, this sort of relatively arbitrary threshold of 60 votes um, really prevents you from getting any kind of bipartisan cooperation because nothing happens because it can't clear the 60 votes. So you're in a state of gridlock and sort of a legislative graveyard. Uh, and also, even if you can get five, six, seven, eight, even nine Republicans on board, which would be a massive bipartisan achievement, mm -hmm. It doesn't count because it, it doesn't get to 60. So that's those are the ways in which the 60 vote threshold actually uh, hurts the efforts to get bipartisanship. Adam Gentleson is author of Kill Switch, The Rise of the Modern Senate and the Crippling of American Democracy. Wolf in Oakland, join us. Hi, Wolf. Hi, Mina. So a little shout out from a fellow Wolverine. Go blue. <laughs> nice. So what's on your uh, mind? So uh, I'm, I'm going to agree with um, the author's comment that if the Democrats don't get rid of the um, uh, filibuster, McConnell certainly will when it becomes convenient for him. So, I mean, they're obviously going to be difficult uh, doing that. But how about making the, the filibuster uh, more inconvenient, force uh, people to be on the floor speaking, make uh, quorum calls, um, uh, you know, make them be there, make, make the senators be on the floor listening to all this mm. garbage uh, and, and making it harder and more inconvenient so they'll want to get rid of it. Wolf, thanks for raising that because I, I don't know that we've talked really enough about how it is used right now, that it's almost like a silent filibuster or the threat of filibuster is enough. Yes, that's right. I, I would I would agree with the caller, um, and I, I'll come back to that. But just to talk a little bit about how it's used, you know, it used to be that you did have to stand on the floor, and um, and that had positive effects for a number of reasons that I'll discuss in a second. But today, you don't have to do that. All you have to do is send an email to your leadership that says, "I'm going to filibuster this bill," and not only do you not have to appear on the floor, what that does is it increases the number of votes it takes to pass the bill from the simple majority up to sixty. So it's easier to use and more powerful because you're not just delaying the bill, you're raising the number of votes it takes to pass it. Um, and that's why it's used all the time now because it's it's both more user-friendly and more powerful. Um, so it's, it's simple to use. And that was sort of McConnell's innovation when he became leader was he took this ease of use and used it to apply the filibuster to everything that passed and sort of ran an experiment in saying, if I make it hard to pass everything, Will we Republicans get blamed or will Democrats, the party in power, get blamed for gridlock? And it turned out that Republicans did not get blamed, even though it was them who were making it hard to pass everything. And Democrats paid a political price because 
people looked at Washington, they saw gridlock and they didn't want to hear excuses. Um, they didn't want to hear Democrats blame Republicans for it. So I, I agree, though, that, that requiring people to talk would be a very good uh, uh, restoration. It has a couple of good effects. One is it makes it harder to use, as the caller suggested. Um, part of the reason the filibuster was so rare in previous eras was that it took a lot of energy and physical stamina to actually use it. So I think you know something as powerful as this should you should you know make people have skin in the game and make it hard to use. Um, it also has an accountability effect. You know, if you wanted to oppose a popular piece of legislation that had broad public support, you had to come out and explain why. Um, and you had to be in the public eye. And maybe that makes you not want to do it. Right. Um, I talk in the book about the failure of the Manchin-Toomey background checks bill. Um, but you know, people were opposing a bill that had 90% public support. This is a bill to establish universal background checks in the wake of the Newtown shooting. Um, but no one had to come to the floor and explain why they were opposing it. Uh, they just were able to do it from the comfort of their offices. And the bill failed, even though it got 55 votes with Democrats and Republicans supporting it. So I think that, you know, having people come to the floor would would make the filibuster harder to use, would, would decrease its use um, to only extreme circumstances, and it would let the public see who's blocking it and let them hear their reasons for doing so. And to add to, to Wolf's point about making it more difficult to use, we've already heard Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema say that they oppose eliminating the filibuster. So do you think reform is more likely? And if so, what kind of reforms would you advocate? Yeah, that's right. I think I think they've made it clear that they don't want to see it go away altogether. Um, and I think there's something to that. I mean, I think, you know, the, the Senate should always provide a platform for the minority in, on any given issue to have their say, to explain their reasons, and to try to persuade the public to come over to their side. Um, but that's the thing is the filibuster used to be, at least in some respects, uh, an effort at persuasion, um, or at least the purpose of debate in the Senate used to be to try and persuade. Now it's just used to block. So I do think that if you if you look at their reasons why uh, they're taking these positions, um, to me it seems like that the goals that they're trying to achieve um, to encourage cooperation to restore debate are things that can be preserved and achieved through reforms to the filibuster, um, while also alleviating some of this gridlock that that is you know bringing our government to a grinding halt and allowing these massive problems that we face as a country to fester. Well, Todd writes, isn't it even more anti-democratic that the filibuster applies to the Senate, which is already non-representative of the population in that even states with tiny populations get the same two senators as states with huge populations? This is certainly, uh, Adam Gentleson, a, a comment that I've heard before. I mean, people find it really galling that <laughs> basically yes, well, Republican senators represent uh, 41 million fewer people than the Democrats do. And this also, the the two states, regardless of population size issue, has also been brought up quite a bit. But um, yeah, to, to Todd's point, what do you have to say? Yes, well, particularly in California, where you know <laughs> 39 million people get the same number of senators as Wyoming, which has 600,000 people. Um, yes, a, a salient point. And and I would note that you know people point to James Madison as sort of the you know defender of minority rights, um, but his his support for these kind of uh, anti-democratic features has been blown way out of proportion. He actually opposed vehemently uh, the idea of giving every state 
the same number of senators. He gave a long speech against it in the Constitutional Convention. Um, he called it a source of grave injustice. And that was at a time when the biggest state, Virginia, was about 10 times bigger than the smallest state, Delaware. So if he thought that was injustice, I'm sure he would think it is even more injustice with California being about 70 times bigger than than Wyoming. Um, so yes, it, it is an, the filibuster is an anti-democratic feature that makes an already anti-democratic institution um, extremely anti-democratic to a degree, you know, even the framers who were very concerned with protecting the elite, you know, private property and, and the rights of minority, you know, takes it far beyond anything they ever would have intended. Um, so I think that's, you know, that is in, in some ways the argument of the book is that, is that, you know, what we've got here is not just a, a system that protects minority rights, it is a system that allows minority rule. Um, and it's tilted far out of proportion to anything that, that was ever contemplated by the framers. We're coming up on a break, but can I ask you your reaction to the U.S. Supreme Court hearing a challenge yesterday against two Arizona voting laws, one requiring in-person Election Day voters cast their votes in their assigned precinct, the other saying that only certain people, family members, caregivers, elections officials can deliver another person's ballot to polling places. Do you see this in the context of anti-majoritarian impulses that are really gaining momentum right now? Do you see a larger meaning there as well? I do. And it's it's probably the single best illustration of why we need to get rid of the filibuster. Um, you know, what we're seeing with this trend for of decimating federal protections for um, voting rights is, you know, a life, a, a multi-decade conservative project. John Roberts, the chief justice, um, who sounded like he was ready to strike down um, these laws, um, has been on a mission to decimate the voting rights since he was a young political appointee in the Reagan administration, Justice Justice Department. Um, but yeah, what what these, you know, what this rise of voter suppression and the gutting of federal enforcement against voter suppression has done is accentuate the ability of uh, a minority of predominantly white reactionary conservatives to exert veto power over the diverse majority of Americans. And this is one of those things that it, it's basically like electoral welfare. It stakes Republicans to an enormous advantage in every election. Um, you know, they're not better than Democrats at winning elections. They just have a huge advantage in every single one that they fight. And uh, as you say, there is a sense that the Supreme Court will rule in favor of these or in favor of upholding these laws. We'll have more with Adam Gentleson right after the break. Stay with us. I'm Mina Kim. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking with Adam Gentleson. He's executive director of the Battleborn Collective, a progressive political strategy group, the former deputy chief of staff for Senator Harry Reid, and author of Kill Switch, The Rise of the Modern Senate and the Crippling of American Democracy. What questions do you have for Adam Gentleson? Questions or comments about the filibuster and how it's been used? 
What do you think about whether we should eliminate it? Do you have broader questions about how the Senate is structured and how it deliberates or share the concerns of many Democrats that the Senate has become anti-majoritarian? 866-733-6786 is the number to call. The email address forum at kqed.org. And also you can reach us on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. Tamara in San Rafael, join us. Hi, Tamara. Hi there. Say thanks for taking my call. This is very fascinating. And I agree with the previous caller and also the previous emailer, both of them, really strong points. We need to get the filibuster back to work. They're not working. Um, My question is about the parliamentarian. And I want to know, number one, how did that come about? Number two, how did it come about that an um, unelected person uh, gives thumbs up and down according to any kind of bills that are coming up. Um, how does it work with the filibuster or not work with the filibuster? Mm. Anyway, I just thought um, the author might have some insight on all of that and how it all is goes together because I'm really tired of the thumbs up and down business also. Tamara, thanks. And of course, the parliamentarian people are more aware of because of the provision related to minimum wage in the COVID relief bill. Um, Adam Gentleson. Yeah, so I'll, I'll take the last part of your question first, which is that um, the reason, the, the interrelation with the filibuster is that, you know, the parliamentarian has a big role in this bill with the COVID aid and was able to strike the minimum wage provision from it because Democrats are seeking to avoid a path that would be blocked by the filibuster. So the parliamentarian's role here is extra significant because they've chosen to use reconciliation here, which, as we discussed before, has the advantage of allowing a strictly majority rule path to passage and no filibuster, but has the disadvantage of allowing the parliamentarian to pass judgment on whether the individual provisions of the bill are compliant with those bird rule restrictions that I mentioned that were passed in the 1980s. So um, it's because we're you know, choosing to sort of try and do an end run around the filibuster uh, that the parliamentarian's role is so significant here. Um, in terms of the evolution of the job, uh, the, the short answer is, is that the Senate became much more reliant on professional staff over the 20th century as its workload uh, expanded. Um, in its original form, the Senate was was literally, you know, 24 senators sitting in a small room together um, and just deciding what to do amongst themselves. They had no staff. Uh, the vice president was usually there presiding. The vice president used to pre- preside over the Senate every day in their constitutional role as as the president of the Senate. Um, and And they would just sort of, you know, decide amongst themselves how they wanted to proceed. Um, The rise of staff came towards the uh, end of the 19th century, and then much more so in the uh, 20th century. As the size of the federal government grew, um, you know, the Senate grew, its workload grew, the number of committees grew, um, and they became reliant on professional staff. So one of the effects of that is that senators themselves these days really don't know that much about uh, the procedure of the Senate. I don't mean that as an insult to them. It's just a fact. Um, And so they rely on staff to tell them what to do and what their options are in a given situation and how the floor works. Um, Because most rank and file senators, they focus on their individual issues they care about, serving their constituents. And then they rely on leadership and the parliamentary staff to sort of tell them how to get their bill to the floor, what they can attach it to, and what their procedural options are on a given basis. And that, that has led them to be very reliant on people like the parliamentarian. Um, the pro- technically, the parliamentarian isn't the one who makes the decision. They give an advisory opinion. Um, but because the Senate has grown into this deferential posture towards staff, um, that advisory opinion has become taken as as law. 
and is being deferred to now. So, you know, it would probably be healthier if, if senators, you know, became learn more about procedure themselves and were able to make those decisions on their own judgment and could take the advice of staff, but but consider it um, relative to their to their own knowledge. Well, Chris writes, keep the filibuster, but make it so a senator has to actually hold the floor in order to maintain it. Curtis writes, the trend for Republican voting isn't favorable. They've moved further right in an America that's becoming more progressive. The filibuster is a last-ditch effort for what will be a permanent minority party to blaming Democrats for lack of progress in Congress. The sooner the filibuster is removed, the sooner the GOP will reform. Fred asks... Oh, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Oh, well, I just, sorry. Yeah, I, that last point I thought was really perceptive because, you know, I think one of the things that allows the Republican Party to be extreme is their ability to uh, block Democrats from from getting anything done. And so people aren't faced with a choice between Democrats and their agenda um, that they're passing and can go to the voters with. They're faced with a passage of two parties that are essentially not getting anything done. Um, I think there's sort of a healthy balance in our system when you know, the liberal side of the aisle comes into office, passes things that address needed problems, expands the social safety net, expands rights. You know, maybe they go too far, then the conservatives come in and, and trim it back and cut spending and, you know, whatever. That's a balance that's proven healthy in, in the 20th century um, for America. But the filibuster is a monkey wrench in all of that that throws everything out of whack because neither side can get anything done, uh, which which allows the, the right-wing party not to focus on reforming and, and fiscal responsibility and those sort of traditional conservative things, but sort of helps facilitate a space where they spin off into these extreme spaces. Well, we're getting a couple of procedural questions that I want to address. Listeners wondering how many votes it actually takes to kill the filibuster, for example. Fred writing, please explain the precise procedure to end the filibuster. Is it as simple as the majority leader proclaiming it's ended? Uh, no, but can you explain? That's right. It's, it is not that simple, but it, it is as simple as a, as a majority vote. Um, so just to be clear, a majority of senators can vote to get rid of the requirement that it takes a supermajority to pass most things. If that sounds complicated, the reason is that the Senate is, you know, was designed, as we discussed, to be a majority rule body. It's designed to be responsive, ultimately, to what a majority of its members want to do. Um, it's a it's a body that's changed and evolved many times in its past. Um, and so, you know, the idea that a majority of its members would want to institute a change is sort of the highest order principle. In these debates, the exact procedure is is basically that the you know majority leader would bring up a bill. Um, he would ask for a ruling from the presiding officer uh, of how many votes it takes to end debate on the bill. That's that's the procedural hang-up where cloture comes into into um, in the sixty-vote threshold come into play is the actual process of ending debate, which is something you have to do before you proceed to a majority vote. Sorry to get too in the weeds here. No, but um, that's an important point. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's a required phase of the bill's life. So you have to end debate before you go to the vote to pass it. And it's that vote to end debate where you get hung up on 60 votes. Yes. So you'd basically ask, how many votes does it take to end debate? The presiding officer would read you back the rule, which says it takes 60, because that's what the rule says. And then the Senate would vote to say, no, it doesn't. Now it takes 50. Um, and if you have a majority of senator of the Senate, or you have 50 plus the vice president saying, this is the new rule, now it takes a majority to end debate, that would essentially be the way you get rid of it. But as we were saying earlier, there are two senators, at least right now, who say they won't eliminate it, though that doesn't necessarily mean they aren't open to reform. And speaking of which, Ruth writes, in addition to going back to the old version of having to hold the floor, what about limiting the number of filibusters per party? I think the Senate only allows three budget reconciliation bills per year. Seems like that could work for the filibuster, too. 
Yes, that's you've got some very very smart listeners here. That's right. It's um, you know you you can write the rule any way you want. So all of these options are on the table. Um, you know, in in the scenario I just described, where you vote to say you know the old rule is gone, here's the new rule. You know that new rule can be anything that you want it to be. Um, the Senate is designed to be flexible in that way and to to allow its self to write new rules. So yes, if you wanted to say you can only have three filibusters a year, you could do that. Um, if you wanted to place a time limit on how long people could talk for, you know, say a week or two or something, you could do that. Um, and I think the the experience of reform has always been that it's an iterative process. And I think that whatever path the Senate decides to go down, I think some kind of reform is inevitable because after we get through these reconciliation bills early in the year, you're going to run into a situation where everything is being blocked, particularly voting rights. And so the reform conversation is going to get serious then. Um, I think that'll be relatively soon. But I do think what you're going to see is an iterative process where new ideas are floated and maybe some things are tried and and we'll see how it goes. But uh, I think a lot of these ideas that, you're, that your listeners are raising are, are things that will be in that conversation. Hmm. Well, let me go to Bob in the Bay Area. Hi, Bob. Hi. You know, this whole discussion is kind of is kind of amusing because the fact is this is all about sheer power. Who who in the right mind believes with what McConnell did with Garland that preserving the the um, the filibuster will be observed by McConnell if it's if it's against his interest? I mean, he there are two words: Garland, Comey. The discussion's over. There's no reason to believe to believe that anybody's going to stay to these things. It's about sheer power. And, the, and, the, and so I'd like a comment because Jonathan Rauch actually anal- analyzed this issue 25 years ago at the level of primaries, that you have somebody like Trump who has a very core, extreme group, and he uses that to threaten people who know better to vote against what is rational. And that is actually the the underlying issue for the filibuster, that you have people who are willing to not vote their consciousness if they're accountable. Bob, thanks. And, you know, his starting line, do you really believe, is very common when it comes to talking about Mitch McConnell. Uh, yes. And, of course, we address this at the beginning. But, but if you want to say more to Bob's point about just the sheer power focus right now uh, of our Congress. Yes. Well, I would say, Bob, have I got a book for you? Because this <laughs> is a, really, in a lot of ways, sort of the central thesis of the book, which is that, you know, a lot of the things that we sort of, the Senate tries to tell us are lofty traditions are really just power plays made by uh, a succession of leaders over several centuries. Um, I, I focus on John Calhoun, uh, Richard Russell and LBJ in the middle of the 20th century, and then McConnell towards the end. I was you know, there and witnessed it um, firsthand. So um, I, I have a pretty good view into the way he operates. And I think that that is part of the, the book there. But no, it's true. I mean, it, you know, essentially what you've seen is um, the Senate uh, and primarily you know, the people who have been better at this over 200 years have been those who've been set on obstruction. And they've succeeded in shaping the institution in profound ways and then convincing everybody that this is the way it was supposed to be. And it's a it's a pattern that I think people would would recognize immediately in McConnell. But you know, Calhoun and Russell in their own day uh, basically, you know, made radical innovations, fundamentally changed the institution, much to the horror of their contemporaries who saw what they were doing and were outraged by it. Um, and then explained to everybody that it was they who were 
truly the representatives of the framers' intent and the founders' tradition, um, when really what they were doing was was radically different from what the Senate was supposed to be. So uh, I, I heartily agree with with Bob's assessment, um, and I think that uh, not only are we returning the Senate to uh, the framers' vision, but I think that we're undoing some of those those power plays that have caused us to be a country that is basically incapable of passing rational, pragmatic, bipartisan solutions to the, to the challenges we face. And again, Adam Gentleson's book is Kill Switch, The Rise of the Modern Senate and the Crippling of American Democracy. You're listening to Forum. I'm Nina Kim. So this listener asks, the system is so arcane and hard to understand, and it feels like it does not honor the will of the majority. I mean, you made this point very clearly with the, the new town and the background checks and the way that it was polling at 90% and then got got killed. Uh, but this listener goes on to say, what can the average person do to make the Senate work better? It seems like we are in a legislative death spiral. Yes, I, I think the average person can, can call their senators and tell them that they care about filibuster reform. I think it's an it's an issue that um, I don't think senators hear a lot about because it's a little bit procedural. It's a little bit wonky, um, but it it really is the gateway to everything else. Um, you know, none of the things that are necessary to restore a basic level of responsiveness to the people, as you, the listener expressed, none of these reforms are going to pass if the filibuster remains in place. That's just a simple reality. Um, and I think that senators generally think this is an issue that that hides in the background that, that their constituents aren't particularly tuned into. Um, in, in California, one senator, um, Senator Padilla, has been a vocal champion uh, of eliminating or reforming the filibuster. Um, but Senator Feinstein has been uh, very reluctant to do that and has yes. come out in defense of the filibuster. So um, one thing that folks could do would, would be to, to make calls. And I think that as someone who worked in the Senate, um, calls really matter. Senators really notice when an issue starts to generate more phone calls than, than others. Hmm. Um, it's it's you know so sort of an analog you know d way of doing politics, but it still really does make a difference. Senator Feinstein, she she hasn't come down necessarily one way or the other. She's just sort of expressed support for it. She's 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 been pretty clear that she intends to try to preserve the filibuster. She hasn't said much lately, but um, last year she's made some pretty strong statements in defense of preserving the filibuster and opposing any kind of reform. Let me go to Lance in the East Bay. Hi, Lance. Hi, uh, I just have a this great conversation, kind of maybe a radical proposal, which probably never happened, but we used to have the state houses appoint or elect the senators. And I just wonder sometimes if we move away from direct uh, elections of our senators back to state houses, would that help, you know, in all these power plays, would that, put it back more in local hands and what your thoughts on maybe as unreal as that would likely be, would that have any positive impact on the, the gridlock we have today? Lance, thanks. Yeah. So that's the, the 17th amendment that, that switched the Senate from um, being selected by state legislators to being directly elected by the people. Um, and I, I, I would be cautious of that because one of the reasons that they switched to direct elections was that corruption was a major issue um, when it came to uh, state legislators picking senators. State legislators were were found to be relatively easy um, to be bought off. No, no offense to the state legislators out there, but this was the this was the experience in the past, and this was why they passed the Seventeenth Amendment. Um, 
it was it was a system that was very susceptible to corruption, party machines controlling the selection of senators, um, and and you know lots of moneyed interests having a big big influence there. So I, I think that some of those concerns would still be very valid there. Um, obviously, money has a big role in regular elections too, and it's everywhere you look in politics right now. So it's hard to avoid it. But that system in particular did did show itself to be one that was particularly susceptible to corruption. Uh, we just have a little over a minute left. And I want to ask you, Adam Gentleson, that if you had to think of a major, major legislation that you think would be critical to our democracy to pass, if they were able to eliminate or reform the filibuster uh, in these first two years, what should that be? Um, I think it would be the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. Um, we need to restore the Voting Rights Act. It was struck down and gutted in 2013 by uh, Senator Roberts leading a majority of the Supreme Court. Sorry, uh, Chief Justice Roberts um, leading a majority of the court. Um, this was a necessary law. This gutting of it is what has opened the door to all the sorts of voter suppression that we've been talking about here. Um, and it's absolutely essential that, that it not just be restored, but strengthened. And that's what the John Lewis Voting Rights Act would do. I would also say, I would, I would take the liberty of proposing one more, which is to look at the issue of statehood for the District of Columbia and Puerto Rico, because part of the reason the Senate is so anti-democratic, you have a dramatic overrepresentation of white people um, in the Senate. So Wyoming, a state that is predominantly white, has about 600,000 people, gets two senators. The District of Columbia is a area that is uh, predominantly back and black and brown, has the same population size as Wyoming, but has no senators. So, and ver very desperately wants home rule. So um, that would help uh, restore some of the um, un imbalance in in uh, racial and ethnic representation in the Senate uh, would be to pass statehood for, for DC and potentially Puerto Rico too. Well, Adam Gentleson, really appreciate having you on today. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Adam Gentleson, author of Kill Switch, The Rise of the Modern Senate and the Crippling of American Democracy. And thanks to our listeners for their questions, comments, reactions. Really interesting. Um, I also want to thank Susan Britton and Raquel Maria Dillon for producing today's segment. I'm Mina Kim. Thanks for being with us. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. 
all over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.